Today, I'm going to begin speaking about the story of Yaakov and Esau in the Torah. Now, the story of Yaakov and Esau is really very difficult to understand. There are many questions that one can ask that need solutions, and there are questions on different levels. There are questions in terms of the fact that the plain shot is very difficult to understand. Now, the story of Yaakov and Esau basically takes place in three parshiyos in the Torah. It takes place in Bereshis, in Parshas Tildes, Parshas Vayetze, and Parshas Vayishlach. That's basically where the story of Yaakov and Esau takes place. Now, what I would like to do is I'm going to relate or review the story itself, the incidents as the Torah describes them, and as I do that, I'm going to ask questions on the, uh, the particular narrative at that point. Now, in order to make it easier, I've divided the story of Yaakov and Esau basically into five parts. The first part is the birth and the childhood of Yaakov and Esau. The second part is the, the part is the brochus of Yitzchok that he gives to Yaakov and also to Esau. Now, both of these incidents are in the parasha of Tildes. The third part is the actual journey to go to Lovan, and also when he resides with Lovan, the actual living with Lovan. And that, of course, is in Parshas Vayetze. The fourth part is the encounter with Esau and the Malach of Esau. And the fifth part is about the Nevoah, the prophetic vision <coughs> that the Rabbani Shalom gives him in base ale. And that is, both of these, four and five, are in Parshas Vayishlach. Now, basically, I'm going to concern myself with three different kinds of questions. The first kind of questions is that those kind of questions that indicate a difficulty in understanding the narrative or the story itself. In other words, the plain meaning of the story is very difficult to understand when we deal with the story of Yaakov and Esau. So therefore, I'm going to be asking questions which deal with this kind of um, uh, type. The difficulties itself that the narrative displays. The second kind of question is those kind of expressions or words which are in the Torah, which really seem rather innocent and innocuous, and to try to reveal profound concepts in them to show that even when the Torah does indicate a word that seems to be part of the narrative and doesn't have to really have any special meaning by itself, that the truth is that these words have very profound ideas in them. And they reveal very great sadis or secrets of the Torah. The third kind of question is the, uh, the idea is that many facts which are stated by Chazal they appear to be simple and a matter-of-fact-like. But the truth is that they reveal many hidden meanings and many profound ideas. So I'm going to be asking questions on the third part, the third kind of question, in this vein. Now, after I talk about the story, the narrative, and also the different questions that one can ask, going over these, uh, the narrative, I'm then going to try to reveal or talk about an internal theme 
an internal plot that seems to answer all the questions, even if they be very numerous. In other words, that one can understand the expressions, what is really going on, the incidents or the events between Yaakov and Esav, by understanding the internal theme. And somehow this internal theme relates all these different kinds of questions. Then I'm going to go back and relate the story and show how each question is answered within the story based on the internal theme or plot, that internal design that is going on in the Chumash. This is what I'm going to basically be doing. Now, let us begin by looking <coughs> at the Chumash itself in Parshish Tildes and to begin the narrative. The Torah tells us, V'eile Tildes Yitzchok ben Avram, that these are the descendants or the generations of Yitzchok, who was the son of Avraham. And that Yitzchok was 40 years old when he married Rivka, and that she was barren and if we prayed for her, and she had children. This is what the Torah begins in Pasha's Tildes. Then it relates further, it says, that the children in her contended with each other, they fought with each other, and Chazal say, interestingly enough, that what was really happening at that point was that whenever Rivka would go past uh, a yeshiva, namely Shem, the yeshiva of Shem Ve'eva, but what happened is that the um, uh, Yaakov would try to break out. He would try to be born. And when she went past an Avodah Zorah, what happened was that Esav would try to be born. So this was a constant struggle wherever she went. And this is what it's meant by Vayisritzatu Habonim Bikirbo, that they fought with her, but what they were really fighting about is depending on where she was going, either to Yeshiva or past a Mokum of Avodah Then it says, so she said, if that's the case, if I'm having so much pain, then what's the whole point of wanting to become pregnant? There are many different shatim. That's a, a, a plain one. And she went to inquire about, from the Rabbani Shlom through Shem what exactly is the meaning, why there's such tremendous pain in this particular pregnancy. So what happened is that the Rabbani Shlom said to her via Novi, which was Shem, that there are basically two great nations within, within you. And that from you, two great governments will split. That one government will always be mightier than the other, one nation, in other words, that there will never be an equality among them. When one is great, the other will be small, and one is small, the other one will be greater. And that ultimately, Rav Yavoy Tzoyer, the great one, will ultimately serve the younger one. Then it says, Vayimu Yumelo Ledet, that she gave birth, and and behold, Tumim, Tumim, Bivitno, she had twins. So the first one came out, Admoini, he was completely red, either his complexion was red or he was red here. And Kule Kader Seir, and he was hairy, completely like a fur coat. So she called Vayikru Shema Esav, and they called his name Esav, which means completed, or uh, finished, because he looked like an older child. Then afterwards, his brother came out, and Vyodu Echezes Ba'akev Esav, and his hand was holding the heel of Esav. And Vayikru uh, Shema Yaakov, and his name was called Yaakov. And at that time, Yitzhak, of course, was 60 years old when he gave birth to them. Then it says, that the, these two youths grew up, 
and that Asa was an Ish Yodeat Sayyid, a man who knew trapping or hunting. He knew it very well. Ish Sodeh, a man of the field. In other words, Yodeat Sayyid is his profession. Ish Sodeh is his hangout where he was all the time, the particular environment that he always was in. Ish Sodeh, he was an outdoorsman. <clears throat> Yaakov and Yaakov Ish Tom, he was a man who was rather plain and simple. He didn't have the mind of a hunter, and he was Yeshiva Yeholim. He dwelled on the contrary in tents. And Chazal, of course, learned that, uh, and he dwelled in tents. Now, Vayevav Yitzchak is Esav, Yitzchak loved Esav, and Rivka loved Yaakov. And it says, Kitzayid Bepiv. Why did Yitzchak love Esav? Because Sayid Bepiv. There was always the hunt in his mouth. Now, <clears throat> then it says, that after making these introductory comments, that it came one day when they were both 15 years old, that Yaakov was making a uh, stew of red lentil beans, red lentils, and Asaph came from the field and he was very tired, exhausted. So he said to Yaakov, of course, feed me from this red stew because I'm very tired. And Yaakov said to him, sell me your bukhara, I'll give you whatever you want. From these, <clears throat> this particular stew, but I want you to sell your bechera. And Asaph said to him, lomos, that I'm going to die anyway, because Chazan said that on that day he killed Nimrod and his son. And Nimrod, of course, was the Nimrod that we know from the Yemois in, in the times, of course, of uh, by Noach. And he was a Gibur Tzayid, Lifni Hashem, that uh, it says there that he was a great hunter before the Rabban Islam. So Asaph killed him and his son. So he said, since anyway I killed him and they're going to come after me, what do I need Bukhara for? So Yaakov said, okay, swear to me that you're going to sell it to me. And he swore to him and therefore he sold his Bukhara. And then Yaakov, it says, gave to Esav lechem bread and he gave him the lentils. And Esav, he ate, he drank, he arose, and he went away. And Esav despised the Bukhara. That is the first section of the Torah which begins to tell us about Yaakov and Esau. <clears throat> now, when we look at this section, we begin to see that there are many, many difficult questions that one can ask. Let's begin to analyze it in that direction. First question we can ask, it says, that the two children fought. That's very difficult to understand. If before Esau was born, he had such an incredible Yitzhah that whenever he his mother Rivka walked by a Mokum of Zora, what kind of Bechira did he have? If he wasn't even born and he had such a powerful Yitzhah then what chance did this individual have to be Bechatoiv? And on the contrary, the reverse, Yaakov. If he had such an incredible Yitzhah before he was born, so what Bechira did he have? Obviously he was going to be a Tzaddik and Esau was going to be a Russia. So what's really going on? Obviously, people who have such powerful forces even before they're born, basically what kind of Bechira do they have? He already was choosing to be evil before he was born, Esau. So then what, what, why do we consider Esau as a Rasha? Second Kasha. The Chumash relates that they were twins. It would seem that two people who had such different natures would not be twins. So then what does it mean that they were twins? It's almost contrary to nature 
kids, children who are usually twins have similar natures. But how can there be twins that have such dissimilar kind of natures? Also, the fact they were twins, what is the significance of the fact that they were twins in general? Okay, next kasha. Why is Toimim written without a Yud and an Aleph? Toimim is spelled Tof Aleph Vov Mem Yud Mem, Toimim. And here it's written Toimim, Tof Vov Mem Mem. It's missing the Yud and the Aleph. What is the significance of the fact that Toimim is missing two letters, a Yud and an Aleph? Another kasha. Chazal say that Yaakov was conceived first, that the Zerah Yitzchok, the first Zerah from Yitzchok was Yaakov, and Esav was second, but on coming out, Esav was first. He was the Bechor. Why does this arrangement have to be so? In other, words, what, in other words, what is the significance of the fact that Yaakov was first and that Esav was second in terms of conception, but in terms of being born, he was the first. He was the Bechor. What is the significance behind this particular arrangement? What are the profound ideas in this? Another kasha. Why was Yitzchak, it says that Yitzchak loved Esau and Rivka loved Yaakov. Why was Yitzchak so attractive to Esau instead of Yaakov? That's the Poshet Pshat. Why did Yitzchak like Esau so much? And it doesn't mean he liked him when he was born. Yitzchak was attractive to Esau even after they grew up, when he realized uh, that Esau was an Ish Sodeh and he saw his particular disposition. He still was more attracted to Esau than Yaakov. The question is why? Another question we can ask. It says that Esau was Yodea Tzayed, he knew trapping, and Ish Sodeh, he was a man of the world. In other words, he was a man, an outdoors man, a man of the field. What is meant in an internal way, in a more hidden way, what is meant by the terms Yodea Tzayed and Ish Sodeh? other than the plain meaning of the Pasuk. Also by Yaakov. It says Yaakov was Yeshiva Holam, used to dwell in tents. And Chazal tell us, of course, that it means he used to dwell in the tents of Shem Ve'ever. means he used to learn in Yeshiva all the time. But what can we really understand in a more profound way, hidden sense, of what this means about Yaakov? Also, we can ask further questions. What is the significance of the fact that Yaakov came out seizing the heel of Esau? Here he's coming out to being born, and it's a rather unusual position for one embryo or one child to go after the other child by seizing his heel. What is the significance of that? That Yaakov was seizing the heel of Esau. Another question. What is the significance, or rather, why did Yaakov want so much Esav's birthright? Why did he want it so much that he was willing, he obviously want, desired tremendously, and he wanted it so much that he said to Esav that I'll, sell, I'll give you the, the lentils, whatever, only if you give me the Bechura. In other words, he had to use this kind of extortion almost to get the Bechura from Esav. Why did he want it so much? Another question. What does this Chazal tell us that the red lentils that Yaakov was making was really the sudos from the Nechoma of Avram Avinu. It was the consolation suda because Avram Avinu died that day that Esav came from the field. And Yitzchak therefore was an Ovel 
and the Suda of red lentils, Yaakov was preparing for Yitzchok to eat. This is a Sudas for the Nechoma of the, uh, of the Ovel. So what is significant about the fact that Esav sold his Bechura on the day that Avram died? Other than the plain meaning of it, that it seems to have been just a coincidence. Another question. It says that he sold it to him for cost Nezid Adoshim. And that he sat and ate it, Esav. And it says, Vayoichel Vayesht Vayokum Vayelach Vayivez. Four expressions, one after the other. He ate it, he drank, he got up, he walked away, and he despised. Why does the Torah tell us this? What is the import or the hidden meaning of that kind of a statement? Another question. From Esav, or from what we see in the Torah, especially in his birth, what can we know about the essential characteristics of Esav and his descendants? In other words, how can we describe Esav, essentially, and be able to identify the main characteristics of Esav, and therefore the main characteristics of also of his descendants from the Torah. Because from the Torah, of course, we can see really what the primary nature of Esav is. Also, another question, Chazal say that Esav was the greatest man who ever lived in fulfilling the mitzvah of Kibra of Aim. Interestingly enough. So the idea is, what is the significance of this fact other than its plain meaning? The fact that Esav was the individual who was Makayim Kibur of Aim in, a, in an incredible way. In fact, there's a Chazal that says that when Esav used to serve his father, he used to serve him in big day Malchus. He used to put on, imagine how he served his father, Yitzchak. He used to put on clothing which we, you would wear only on special days and then he would come in to greet his father and ask him whatever he wanted. Imagine the Kibur of Aim that Esav did with his father. So what is the significance of the fact that he was such a Mechabed, a Kibur of Aim? So far we have dealt with the first phase or, or the section of Yaakov and Esav, and that is the birth and the childhood of both Yaakov and Esav. And we see that there are many, many difficulties in understanding what is really going on behind the narrative of Yaakov and Esav. Let us now go on to the second part, the second section, which basically deals with the brochus, the blessings that Yitzchak gave, and what was transpiring between the deception that Yaakov was trying to do, and Esav, as everybody's familiar with the story. Now, just as a quick review, if you recall, it says that when Yitzchak grew old, and his eyes grew dim, in other words, he was blind, and there are many upshotam on why his eyes grew dim, in any case, uh, he called, of course, he called Esav and he told him uh, that he should go out, that he doesn't, he's getting old and doesn't know the day of his death, and he should go out and take his weapons and, of course, hunt him some kind of venison, some kind of meat. And he should make it the way he loves it, and as a result of that, and I will eat it, that my soul may bless you before I die. Rivka, of course, heard it when Yitzchak was talking to Esav, and uh, as soon as Esav went out, she went over to Yaakov and it says, you must immediately go and prepare uh, uh, two gidoyim, two kids, not one, two kids. And, uh, and the reason why you have to do this, of course, is because if you don't do it now, Esav will get the brachos and you will be out of it. And of course, Yaakov was very uh, fearful of that because if he finds out, he'll get cursed. So she said, don't worry about that, go out and do it. 
And of course, that's exactly what Yaakov did. He prepared himself and disguised himself with hairy arms and so on. And uh, he went in front of Yaakov, and Yaakov told him, Who are you? And he said, Of course, I'm Esav, your Becherecho, and uh, that I have done what you have asked me, that your soul should bless me. And of course, Yitzchak was suspicious because he used the name of God in saying that the Rabbanishlam has made a, uh, the hunt go much quicker. And the Esav, of course, wasn't used to using that kind of Lushan. And so therefore, Yaakov said, the coal is called Yaakov, that the voice is the voice of Yaakov, the hands are the hands of Esav, after he felt them. Then he said, okay, I will bless you. She said, come closer. And he began. Okay? And the, uh, the Apostlech begins, that it says, Vayigash, and he approached him, Yaakov to, to uh, Yitzchak, Vayishak and Yitzchak kissed him, and he smelled the smell, the aroma of his clothing, and he blessed him. And he said, Re'eh, behold, Re'ach b'ni, the smell or the aroma, the odor of my son, is like the odor, the aroma of a field which God has blessed. And he then precedes him, that's the introduction, and he precedes him to give the brachas, that the Rebbeinu should give him mital hashemayim, from the dew of the heavens and from the fats of the earth, and an abundant amount of grain and wine, and also that nations shall serve you, and your brother, and you shall be a lord of your brother, and those that curse you will be cursed, those that bless you, of course, will be blessed. As soon as that ended, Yaakov went out, and immediately in walked Esav, of course, and um, Yitzchak said, who are you? And he said, Esav, and of course, at that point, Yitzchak realized what had happened, and he, had a, he shook a tremendous charod Admiroid. And uh, when Esav heard what happened, of course, he, he let out a tremendous great cry. And uh, he, of course, he asked for a brocha from his father. And his father said, basically, there's nothing you can do because he's had the brochas. But he did give him a brocha. Yitzchak did give Esav a brocha. That he told him that you should also have the fat of the land also. And the, um, the fat of the land and that also the dew of the heavens, and that you'll live by your sword, and that you'll serve your brother. But, Kashetoret, when you will grieve, when his oppression will become too great, you can throw off this yoke from off your neck, and he won't rule over you anymore. And of course it says that Yaakov hated, or rather Asaph hated Yaakov, and he plotted to kill him after the days of the Avelis of, of, uh, uh, of his father would be over. And it was, it was after when his Yitzchak would die, he would then kill Yaakov. He didn't want to do it, of course, <coughs> while he was alive. Of course, Rivka found out about it, and she told him, go now to leave now until his anger becomes calm. And she sent him to Lovan in order to choose a wife. And then we find, of course, that Yaakov calls him back. That Yaakov call, and, uh, and the Yaakov call, uh, that, excuse me, Yitzchak called him back. And he again gave him some new brachas. And he told them, don't, don't choose, of course, anybody from the Knanim, and that the Bershom should bless you, and he again. And he also adds, He should give you the blessings of Avram. Okay, to you, to your descendants, and to, uh, that you should inherit the land. And then Yitzchak sent Yaakov to pardon Aram, where Lobam was, of course, and, uh, and that's exactly where he went. Now, that is basically the second... Uh, incident that we find in Chomish concerning Yaakov and Esav. And again, we find many difficulties in this particular Pasha.
in this particular section. Let's see exactly what the difficulties are. First of all, Yitzchak saw that Yaakov is basically an Yeshiva Holom, that he dwelt in tents. In other words, that he learned Torah. And he also saw that Esau was basically an Ishsadeh, that he's a man who obviously didn't learn that much, that he was obviously doing a lot of hunting and a lot of in- interacting with Oyelma Hazer. So then why would he give the brachas to Yaakov, or rather Esau, rather than Yaakov? I mean, how, was, was Esau able to fool him even from the fact that he was an Ishsadeh? It doesn't seem so, because the fact that he was an Ishsadeh seemed to be very clear to everybody that they had two different dispositions. So if, 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 if Yitzhak saw that one son was a Talmud Chochm, was sat and learnt all day, right? And the other one was out in the woods hunting all day, who do you think would be more proper to give him the brachas of Avram? Obviously, Yaakov. So then why did Yitzchak want to give the br- b- blessings to, to wanted to give the blessings to Esav? Also, it, the, the Torah used the expression, or rather Yitzchak says that your daim is the day Esav, the hands are the hands of Esav, and the curlers are called Yaakov. So the question is, what does your daim mean in terms of Esav? And what is the expression of curl, what does that really mean by Yaakov? Now, in addition, why did Yitzchak tell Esav to hunt him food before the brachas? There was plenty of game in his home. He didn't have to tell him to go and hunt. What was the point of having had Esav go out and hunt food that he should bring it back to Yitzchak and then he would be able to give him the brachas? The question, of course, is why? Now, in addition to that, Yitzchak says in the beginning of the brachas, that the odor of my son, the aroma of my son, is like the aroma of a field which the Rabbanishim has blessed. The question is, what does that statement mean? Because that's before the blessings. That's a statement of fact, that he's smelling the begodim of Yaakov, and he says that the aroma from the begodim is like a field which has a beautiful aroma, a field which, therefore which the Rabbanishim has blessed in terms of its beautiful produce. What is the meaning of that introduction? the panemius of that introduction. Another question. Why is it when Yitzchok did give Yaakov the bracha, of course Yaakov was disguised as Esav, why didn't he give him the birchus Avram? Which he gave him later when he was supposed to leave for Lovin's house. Why didn't he give him the birchus Avram, which he gave him when he left for Lovin's house, why didn't he give him initially? Uh, why didn't he give him to, uh, to Yaakov initially, or rather to Esav, who he thought was Esav initially? What is the difference? Also, go further. <clears throat> what was the nature of the brachas that he gave Yaakov, who of course disguised himself as Esav? So we have these two questions. What was the nature of the brachas that he gave actually to Yaakov, who was disguised as Esav? And also, how do we understand the fact mm-hmm. that when he gave Yaakov the brachas, at the end, when he was going to go to Lovin's house, like I said, he gave him the birchus of Avram. The birchus of Avram was when he thought he was Esav, he did not give him the birchus of Avram. Now, another question. What is the significance? Now, it says after that, of course, Esav realized that Yaakov took his birchus and he uttered a tremendous cry. What is the significance of that cry which he cried when Yaakov took the birchus? What does it signify or what are the hidden meanings in that? What was the effect of the fact that Esau did cry for the brachas that Yaakov got? Now, also, 
Chazal say that Esav shed three tears. One came from the right eye and fell. One came from the left eye and fell. And one came from both and went down the middle and stayed on the nose, you know, in the middle of the face. Didn't fall. That's what Chazal say. What does that Chazal mean? Only three tears, one in the right eye, one in the left eye, and one that came from both down the middle and stood midway and didn't fall. What does that mean? What is Chazal really, of course, trying to tell us? In addition, <clears throat> we see that Yitzchak says that Yitzchak says to Esau when he calls him in that he wants to give him brachas. He says, go out and hunt me food. And he says that my soul may bless you. That my soul may bless you. Why didn't he just say that I may bless you? What's the idea that my soul may bless you? One can say maybe it's poetic forms or whatever, but is there any other kind of meaning besides that idea? In addition, Chazal say, the Pirkei Derebe Eliezer, that the brochus were given on the night of Pesach. And that, and therefore Erev Pesach is when he told Esav to go out and hunt. And that the two kids, the two Gedoyim, that were given, that Rivka told Yaakov to give, one was the Korban Pesach, that was uh, Korban Pesach, and the other was the Korban that you had to eat, and therefore the Pesach could be eaten after. Because the halacha is that the Pesach has to be nechal ala seva. You have to eat it when you're already satiated. So the first one was the korban that would satiate you. And the second korban was the korban Pesach. That's why she told him to get two. Okay? So the idea is, what is the illusion that is contained in these facts? Why does it have to be the night of Pesach? And one, of course, is going to be the korban Pesach, that he's going to give the brachas over. What is meant by those ideas that Chazal say? Also, the, the, uh, the mitzvah of Mila was not given to Esav, even though Esav observed it. And not only he observed it, but even his descendants observed it, as long as Yitzchak was alive. However, when Yitzchak was Nifta, then that was the end of Mila. And they were not commanded, they were not given the mitzvah of Mila, the bris. So the question was, Esav was real, he was really a Jew, he was a complete Jew. Yishmael was from Avram, but also from Hagar. But Esav was from Rivka and Yitzchak. He was really Jewish. So then why is it that the mitzvah of Mila also was not given to him? Why was it only given to Yaakov? These are the questions that one can ask on this particular section. The next section that we find, that we talk about Yaakov and Esav, of course, is in Pasha's Vayetze, when he begins talking about the journey that Yaakov has to go to Lovon. And also the, uh, the living, the actual living himself that Yaakov had, uh, that Yaakov lived with Lovan. And it says that Vayetzi Yaakov mi Beersheva, that Yaakov went out of Beersheva, Vayelech Choronon, he went to Choron. And it says that he of course went to a certain place because the sun had set, and he had an interesting dream. And the dream of course was a ladder whose bottom of the ladder was on the ground and the head of the ladder, the top, of course, reached into the Shemayim, and that the angels of the Rebbeinu were Olim v'yordim bo, were ascending and descending the ladder. And then it says, V'hinei Hashem Nitzov Olov, that the Rebbeinu was standing on Yaakov, that's one shot, and the Rebbeinu tells him that I am the God, of course, of Avram, your father, and the God of Yitzchak, and that the land that you are lying on, of course, you will get. And then he continues 
telling him more, and then he says, "Ve'onicha v'hinei, and behold, onichi imoch, I will be with you, u'shmaticha, and I will watch you in all that you go, and I will return you to this land, and I will not desert you." And of course, Yaakov gets up and he realizes what transpired, and then of course uh, he um, he makes him atzeva. Then Yaakov, of course, proceeds on his way to go to Lovan. And, of course, we find him coming to Lovan's house, where eventually he winds up, of course, marrying Rochel and Leah. And uh, he gives birth, of course, to the children. And we have the contest, of course, between all the mothers, Rochel, Leah, Bilha, and Zilpah, of course, of trying to uh, have as many children that would be Shvotim as possible. And then it says... After all the everything was done, that the last child to be born, of course, was Yosef. Was Yosef. It says that the Rebbeinu Shlom over here, Vayisko Lekimes Rochel, that he remembered Rochel, and he heard her, and he allowed her to give birth, and she conceived, and she said, Osaf Elokim Posi. The Rebbeinu Shlom has gathered, meaning he has taken away to a spot where I won't see it. Eschir Posi, my humiliation. And she called his name Yosef, saying, Yosef li ben The Rebbe should give me another child, which of course came out to be Binyamin. Then it says, Vayihi Yosef. As soon as Rochel gave birth to Yosef, Yaakov said to Lovan, Shalcheni, send me away. That's when Yaakov decided to leave, when Yosef was born. And he says that, of course, and uh, of course then we wind up and the idea that Yaakov works, of course, another seven years for his scha, the flax and so on, and Lovim pursues him, and he finally rids himself of Lovim, and he comes to Eretz Israel. Now, we could take a look at this also and ask many different questions. Why does it say that Yaakov left Beersheba and then he went to Choran? Because it seems that the fact that Yaakov left for Choran is somehow connected with the events that transpired in Beersheba. So the question is, what is, in the pneumistic of fashion, what is the events that forced Yaakov to leave? Other than the simple shot of the fact that he had to run away from Mesa, that's the obvious idea. But is there something else going on that would indicate why Yaakov had to leave? Another question. Why did Yaakov have to go to Lovin at all, in terms of his wives? Yitzchak never left Avram. On the contrary, it was so arranged where his wives came to him. Rivka came to him through El- 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 Eliezer, the servant, right? So why is it? Why couldn't it be also that the wives of Yaakov also would come that way? Why would he have to go and pursue to go to love and, and get his wives? Also, why is it that Yaakov left? Or rather, why is it that Yosef was born at the end? First he had all the other Shvatim, and Yosef is next to the last son before Binyamin. What significance does that have, that Yosef is born at the end of all the sons? In addition to that, why is it that as soon as Yosef is born, Yaakov decides to leave? What did Yaakov see in the birth of Yosef that it was now permissible to go back to Eretz Israel and possibly even to encounter Esau? Also, Chazal say that Yosef is the Sitnoi of Esau. He is the adversary of Esau because it says that Beis Yaakov will be a fire, 
and that Beis Yosef will be the flame, will Beis Esav the kash, and that the house of Esav as a result will be the kash, which is stubble. In other words, it will be completely destroyed. Okay. So we see that Yosef is the sitnan shel Esav, the adversary of Esav. So the question is, why? In what way, or what power does Yosef have that he is the adversary of Esav? Now, in addition, Rochel says by Yosef's birth that Osav Hashem Esher Posi, that the Rebbe gathered or he took away my humiliation. And she also says, Yosef Hashem Li that the Rebbe should give me another son. Wait, what are the hidden remosim in those two remarks? Now, to go back when he had the dream of the Sulam, why is it that the angels were going up and down? What does that mean? Not only that, why is it that they were first going up and then they were going down? What is that supposed to indicate? That they were first going up and then they were going down. Now, another kasha. Why does it say Hashem meets of Olov that the Vajnam was standing on top of Yaakov? What is the there are misfortune that learn Nitzav Olov means on top of the ladder, by the ladder, but there are misfortune that learn that it means Nitzav Olov, and that's really what Pashib Shah is. That he was standing on top of him. What does that mean? What does that signify? Also, the Rabbanishlam goes out of his way to tell him that he will guard him, he will watch him on the way. Why does the Rabbanishlam have to give him that promise of Shmirah, especially now? Also, the Rabbanishlam tells him. And in you shall be blessed all the families of the earth and in your descendants. He tells him this. What is the significance of this statement that the Rebbe tells Yaakov Avinu when he was sleeping? Also, what is very strange is that the, uh, Yitzchok and Rivko both told Yaakov to go to Lovan to get a wife. Why is it that Yaakov didn't immediately go to Lovan? Because Chazal tell us that he went to learn for 14 years in the yeshiva of Shem Ve'ever before he even went to Lovam. So the question is, he obviously didn't listen to his parents to go immediately and take a wife because he obviously wanted to learn. And his learning, of course, would take 14 years. So the question is, why did Yaakov all of a sudden feel the need to go and study now for 14 years? We know that he was an accomplished Talmud Chochem, he's been learning for years, Yeshiva Holom. Why all of a sudden would he have a need to go and learn for so many years? Rather, and this was the reason, of course, why he didn't immediately go to Lovan. Why would he have this need to go and learn for so many years instead of going and to, uh, to fulfill the words of his parents? Now, these are the questions on the third section. Now, the fourth section deals with the encounter of Esav and also with the Malach. And let's just take a look at that. We are now in Parshas Vayishlach, where we have the encounter with Esav and, of course, the encounter with the Malach. And briefly what it says, of course, is that Yaakov sent Malachim to Esav, his brother, to the land of Seir. And, of course, uh, he told them to tell Esav that your servant Yaakov, Im Loven Gauti, I have lived with Loven, of course, for... Uh, for uh, many years, and of course, and therefore I delayed until now, and of course he tells him, Vahili, and I have, Shaw, I have oxen, Vachamor, Shaw means an ox, Vachamor means donkeys, Tsoin, of course, means uh, flock, sheep, and I have uh, 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 servants and maidservants and so on. And that, 
this is what he sends, of course, to tell them to Esav. And, of course, they go and deliver the message to Esav. Uh, this is the first idea. It says that he, of course, delivered a tremendous amount of material wealth to Esav in order to placate him, that Esav, of course, shouldn't kill him. Then it says that he sent over the uh, Yaboik, the Ma'ava Yab, over the Yaboik, the uh, tributary of the Yaboik, he sent his family, and he remained alone on the other side of that tributary. And it says, Vayivose Yaakov remained alone, Vayiovek Ish Imoi, and a, a man fought with him, Ad Alisa Shocha, until the beginning of dawn. Now this particular section here is one of the most mysterious sections in all Chumash. Because Chazal say that the Ish that he fought with wasn't an ordinary man. He was the Sarish al which means the guardian angel of Esav. And who is the guardian angel of Esav? The guardian angel of Esav is Samuel himself. Samuel who is synonymous with the Malchamoves, the Sotan and the Yitzhahora. He is the chief over the entire Sitra Akhra, all the forces of evil. This is who he fought with. You can imagine. And then it says, Vayar, and he beheld the Malach, that he can't subdue him. So he touched the thigh, and he dislocated his thigh while he was fighting with him. And then he said to him, and then he said to him, send me, because the dawn is coming up. And Vayoyme, so he said, I won't send me, I won't send you, I should say, unless you bless me. So the Malach says, what's your name? So he answers Yaakov. So he tells him that your name will no, no longer be called Yaakov. Your name will now be called Yisrael. Why? Because you have fought, you have contended with God and also with men, and you have won. Therefore, your name is Yisrael. Therefore, and then Yaakov asks, asks him his name, and he says, what's, doesn't, what's the point of asking my name, of course? And he blessed him there. And of course it says, Vayikro Yaakov Shem HaMokim, he called that place Pniel. Why? Because Kiroisi Elokim, I have seen God. And he doesn't mean God, he means the Malach. Because Malachim are also called Elokim. Ponim El Ponim, face to face. Batinotzel Nafshid, I was saved. And then it says, Vayizrach Shemesh, and the sun shone upon Yaakov, as Kasha'ov, as Pnuel, as Yaakov was going away from Pnuel, and of course he was limping on his feet, and then the Torah says, of course, that's why we don't eat the Gid Hanosha. And then, of course, we have the idea where he actually meets Esav. Now, this Pasha also is very difficult to understand. Is also very difficult to understand. And there are many questions that we can begin to ask on it. First question. It says that, it says that uh, Yaakov, when he sends the message to Esav, he says, Im loven gati. Now, Chaz- I live with loven. Chazal learned that gati is also the same oasis as Tayyad, 613. So what Yaakov was really telling him is that I lived with loven, who was such a Russia, and even though I observed the 613 mitzvahs, this is what Chazal said. But that doesn't make sense. Why does Esav care if Yaakov lived with love and observed 613 mitzvahs, he certainly wasn't observing Tariyag mitzvahs. So what's gate the man, like they say? What does he care if Yaakov was observing it or not with love? What's really the hidden communique that Yaakov was telling Esau? Okay. Another kasha. Yaakov tells him, I have shor v'chamor tzoyin. Why does he have to enumerate, basically to Esau, what I have? Let him just say, I have a lot of possessions. 
One is enumerate shaw, an ox, chamor, a donkey, tsuin, and also flock. What's again the hidden message that Yaakov is telling Esau? Also, another kasha. It says that Yaakov fought with the Sarashal Esau, who, which I just spoke about, and what, and he fought with him in some way, which the Torah does not describe. There was some kind of method of, of contention. But the question is here is that why does the Sultan himself have to fight Yaakov? Why didn't he send messengers, other Malachim? Why does he himself have to go and fight Yaakov? Who has to go and fight Yaakov? Why? Another question. Why does the Sultan have to fight with him at all? What's the point? Besides the fact that the Sultan, of course, in, in, included in that question is the Sultan didn't fight with Avram. He didn't fight with Yitzchak. Why does he have to fight with Yaakov at all? What's the point here? Again, another question. Also, why does a sudden have to fight now at this point in time? Not only in terms of Avram and Yitzchak, but why now in this point in time in terms of Yaakov's life? After leaving Lovan, now he decides to fight with him. What's, what's the, the uh, profound ideas that are implied in these questions. Another question. That the, the Sitra Achro, which of course is a Sutton, he dislocated the thigh of Esav, or, or rather he dislocated the thigh of Yaakov before the dawn. Okay? He saw he couldn't win him, so he dislocated his thigh before the dawn arose. What does this signify? What does this mean? What's the implication of that? Again, Yaakov asked... Yaakov asked the, the Malach, the Sultan, to bless him. So what is his answer? That he says that your name will no more be Yaakov, it will be Yisrael, because you have contended with God and man, and you have won. That's not a blessing. That's merely a statement of fact. Wherein does the blessing lie that the Malach told uh, Yaakov? Because he was, he was merely telling him that you contended with men and with God, whatever, and therefore... Uh, I will change your name to Israel. That's not a blessing. That is a statement of what transpired previously. So therefore, how does the Malach really bless Yaakov of Vino? In addition, it says that Shemesh and the sun shone upon him. What's news about that? I mean, what, what, is, what is the Torah telling me? By Yisrael and the sun shone upon him. I would imagine the sun shone upon him. It shines on everybody else also. What does the Torah want to tell me with that idea? The time is up. We will continue next week. Yaakov says, or rather Yaakov calls the place Peniel. But the, the Torah says that when he left the place, he called it Penuel. So the question is, what is the, the term Pnuel as the name of the Mokam? What does that indicate or signify? What are some of the profound ideas that are indicated in merely the name that Yaakov designates to a place? Now, so far we have covered four sections. There is one last section, of course, which is the prophecy itself, which the Rabbani Shalom appears to Yaakov Avinu in Beis El, after he comes back from Padan Aram, after he fights with the Malach, after, of course, he meets Esav, he now comes back to Beis El, and the Rebbe appears to him and gives him a Nevoah. This is, of course, is still in Parshish Vayishlach. It says here, very briefly, that Vayeru Lekim Yaakov, that the Rebbe appeared to Yaakov, Oid again, 
in the same place because he had appeared to him previously before he went to Lavan. Now he appears to him again. The boy me Aram from his coming back from Padna Aram and he blessed him. And he told him, the Rabbi Shem told him, Vayomelo Elokim, that the Rabbi Shem told him, Shimchu Yaakov, lo Yikor, Shimchu Yaakov, your name is Yaakov, but your name shall no longer be called, no longer be called Yaakov, but Yisrael will be your name. And he called his name Yisrael. So in other words, the Rabbi was confirming what the Malach, who had fought with Yaakov, he was confirming that new designation. And the Rabbi tells him that I am Kel Shaddai, of course, and that you should multiply, and many kings will come out of you. And that the land which I promised Avram and Yitzchak, of course, I will give you. And then it says, Vayal Me'olov Elokim, that the Rabbi went, ascended Me'olov, again, from upon him, in the place which he spoke to him. This is basically the gist of the nevuah that the Rabbi Shalom gave to Yaakov when he appeared to him. Now, on that we can also ask several questions. And that is, first of all, it says, why does it say, Vaya'al me'olov Hashem, that the Rabbi Shalom ascended from Yaakov Vino, that he was upon him and he ascended from being upon him. What does this signify? Also, <clears throat> we saw that it says Nitzav Olov, that the Rabbi Shalom was standing on him by the Sulam, and now it says, and God now ascended on him. So it says twice Olov, that the Rabbi Shalom was twice upon him. Once by the Sulam, where it says that the Rabbi Shalom was upon him by, by the ladder, and again later it says here, that the Rabbi ascended from him after he finished telling him the nevuah, the prophetic vision. So the question is, what is the significance of the fact that it says, Olov, that the Rabbi was upon him twice? Also, another question. What does the name Yaakov and what does the name Yisrael connotate? What is the real precise understanding of the name Yaakov, his former name, and the new name that Yisrael, that the Rabbani Shalom gave him, which was also, of course, given also by the Malach. In addition, another question. <clears throat> Why is it that the Rabbani Shalom called Yaakov the name Yisrael at this particular point in time? Why now does Yaakov now get the name of Yisrael? Mamish at this time. Also, if Yaakov's name's name was changed to Yisrael, then why do we call him Yaakov? Why don't we call him Yisrael? We find by Avram that Avram's name was changed from Avram to Avraham. And we never call him Avram again. But by Yaakov, we find that even though his name was changed from Yaakov to Yisrael, then why is it that we still refer to him many times as Yaakov? Okay? To understand this particular idea. These are the questions, basically, which I wanted to bring out by Yaakov and Esau. What, what have I done so far? What have I done so far? The idea is that we have gone through the story of Yaakov and Esau briefly, and also many questions were asked. Now, if somebody kept count, there were 50 questions that were asked. That's the total amount of questions that were asked. And again, as I said before, that these questions were of three different kinds. One was the difficulty, some of the questions related to the difficulty in the narrative itself, that the plain meaning of the story was very difficult to understand. 
The second kind of question was that there are many expressions of words in the Torah which are innocent looking and they don't seem to reveal anything other than the actual uh, literary style. And the third kind of question is the question is that Chazal many times say statements that seem to be merely a matter of fact. And the question is, of course, is what are the profundities that lie in the statements of Chazal? What I would like to do, of course, is to attempt to answer all 50 questions with one internal theme or one mahalach. And uh, hopefully that the questions themselves will be answered by this internal theme. And that will bring out what was the true internal design or the hidden story of what was transpiring between Yaakov and Esau. To mention uh, an important idea. Now, all these different questions, 50 more or less to be exact, the idea is that many of these questions are answered, of course, by Mephoshim. But the idea which I want to present is that basically the approach that is used by Mephoshim is a fragmented approach. In other words, that you'll have a question and Chazal or the Mephoshim will attempt to answer that question. You'll have another question, Chazal will attempt to answer that question. So therefore, what comes out is that you see a sort of a, a disunity among all the different questions in Yaakov and Esau, and therefore one has the feeling you don't have this flow of what's going on, the theme that answers all the questions. Therefore, even though each of these questions can be answered by different Mephoshim, but it's a fragmented approach. What I'm going to attempt to do is to show an internal theme, and that one internal theme will answer all these questions, which is a completely different kind of approach. So therefore, uh, the fact that Mephoshim answer it, we know that. It's the approach that is different. And what I want to demonstrate is by knowing the internal theme of the Bria, Therefore, one sees the harmony of all the different kinds of difficulties that presents itself. And uh, therefore, one can answer all the different questions based on this internal harmony. Now, I just wanted to briefly sum up or uh, generalize what I'm attempting to do uh, in terms of the method that is used in general of learning Tanakh, Chumash, Nevi'im, and Ksubim and actually the method that is used in general to learn any Chochmah. Now, the method that I use, I could conveniently call Tiferes, or beauty. And the idea, of course, of Tiferes is that when one sees the harmony, or that kind of a synthesis that exists among seemingly different ideas, when we can observe that kind of an integration of, of apparently different concepts and events or phenomena of any Chochmah, that is called Tiferes or beauty, because it is an, an aesthetic kind of quality to be able to unite many different things into one unifying picture. That is the method which I try to use, and that is Tiferes, the method of beauty in the sense that to always search for the internal meanings and the internal theme, and thereby uniting many things that seemingly are fragmented and disparate. Yet when the internal ideas are revealed, or the principle, the internal principles, those inner structures are revealed, then all these seemingly different kind of phenomena or events or whatever is beautifully harmonized and integrated and, and synthesized into one, uh, one, one story. Now, this, is, this method can be used, of course, in any Chochmah. Now, in Hashkofa, 
then what one seeks to do, of course, is to look for this harmony or this true internal design of all creation. That's what Ashkofa is. And Ashkofa should therefore not be learned in a fragmented way of many different shetlach or different drushes, but should, should be learned as a system which gives the person a united framework. And of course, this framework then unifies, it unites all different kinds of separate or disparate or different events and phenomena and concepts. That's what the approach should be to Hashkofa. Now, as applied to Torah, when a person uses the method of Tferis as applied to Torah, then what, of course, what we try to do is to seek the internal principles, that inner design, in order to give an understanding to all halachas, or Agadatot in Gemara, or Midrashim, or Tanakh, in any one of these areas, when one seeks to understand them, one should not seek to understand them in separate different instances, each halacha separately, but to try to unify everything in terms of its inner meanings, its inner structure. This is the idea when you apply Tiferes, learning that way, to Tanakh also. As such, one can also call Tiferes by a different name called Derech Hayichod. Derech means a method. Hayichod, the way of unity. No, it's, it's a method of analysis that seeks to unify everything by organizing it into a system or a structure. Derech Hayichod. And of course, the Derech Hayichod is based on the fact that the Rabbanishim created reality with an internal structure, an inner idea. And the method of investigation merely uncovers the true reality. So therefore, what determines the fact that one can analyze reality in this Yichud idea, Tferis, unifying all things by an internal design, is because the Rebbeinu created reality as an intrinsic internal design unifying everything. It's like an onion. An onion, as you peel away one layer, another layer is revealed. Reality is the same idea, that as that phenomena or events or ideas are not separate or distinct, but the truth is that they look that way, but when you analyze them in terms of being miyachid or unifying them, then what happens is you see the clear relationship of all reality together. And obviously the reason why the Rabbani Shalom ordered reality that way, and therefore we can therefore, or rather this provides us with the justification of using this method, is because the Rabbani Shalom created reality and he based on his oneness. That is what was supposed to be masik. Therefore, all reality, since it's based on the yichud of the Rabbani Shalom, on the oneness of God, therefore all reality must reflect a oneness in itself and also a oneness as it is, is merely an expression of the yichud of the Rabbani Shalom. That is a basic uh, generalization of the method that I try to use in approaching Tanakh. Now, last week, uh, or rather, I had asked so far 50 questions on the parasha of Yaakov and Esav, and trying to keep true to form, I'm going to try to answer them in a method of Tverus with one idea. Now, before proceeding, however, I want to ask one more question, the 51st question. And in many ways, this particular question is really one of the most difficult to answer in all of Torah. It's really very difficult to answer. It's one of the most mysterious, actually. And it's also one of the most frequently asked when people learn the, uh, the uh, Chumash Bereshis. And also, interestingly enough, it bothers the most people. <clears throat> this particular question bothers people. Now you'll ask me, 
what is the question that is really bothersome to people and is one of the most difficult to answer in all of, all, all of Chumash and is most frequently asked. And the answer is that when you take a look at the parsha of Yaakov and Esau, there is an event that is very difficult to understand. And that is that the brachas of Yitzchak that were given to Yaakov, why did they have to come about through deceit? Why did they have to come about through this incredible deceitful ruse that Yaakov had to use, that Yaakov and Rivka both, in co collaboration, had to use against Yitzchak in order to sort of fool Yitzchak in giving the brachas to Yaakov. Why? And the question assumes greater significance when we remember that Yaakov's main disposition was MS, truth. Okay? And as truth, the antithesis of truth, of course, is deceit, sheker. So here we find Yaakov engaging in, in, in an act which is completely antithetical to his entire personality, antithetical to his entire uh, disposition, his character traits. His character trait is one of Emma's truths, of always being honest, upfront, like they say, forthright. <clears throat> In fact, the word Tom, Yaakov Ish Tam, a man of Tam, Tam means complete or whole, means whatever he said is what he felt. There was no deceit, there was no facade in Yaakov. Therefore, he was Tomim, he was whole or complete. He wasn't Echad Bepev, Echad Belev, which means saying one thing with his mouth and believing another thing with his heart. He was up front. There was no facade. He related to you exactly the way he felt. So therefore, that's why he was an Ishtam, a complete whole man. So therefore, if that's the case, so this entire idea or the entire event of what transpired is completely <coughs> antithetical to the Midah of Yaakov. So therefore, it even strengthens the question of why did this happen? And when you think of it further, it's even more difficult to understand. Because if you think about it, Esav was undeserving of the brachas for three reasons. First of all, he was a Russia, so automatically he was undeserving clearly of, of, of uh, taking the brachas, which of course would mean the inheritance of Avram. He was a Russia, so why? Of course, he would certainly never be deserving of those brachas. The second thing is that Esav legitimately sold the bechira, the birthright. He, you know, for whatever, whether the price that Yaakov exacted from Esau was good or bad, it was only a, a pot of lentil soup, red beans, the idea is that Esau agreed. And Esau swore to Yaakov, he shovelies, Yaakov says, swear to me, and Esau swore to him, and he sold him the Bechera. So therefore Esau did not deserve the Bechera or the Brachos, because uh, he sold legitimately and legally his Bechera. So that's another reason why Esau did not deserve the Bechera. And the third reason is that there was a clear prophecy, a clear nevuah at birth, that when Rivka went to inquire of the Rabbani Shalom through Shem, the prophet Shem, of why she was having so much pain at this particular pregnancy, so the uh, Shem answered her different statements, and one nation will be greater than another nation. But what he also said was, Rav the older will serve the younger, which is clearly an indication that the Bechira, the real blessings, of course, goes to Yaakov, not to Esav. So you have three reasons why Esav clearly did not deserve the Bechira. If that's the case, why do we find this deceit being used in order to exact it from Yitzchak? Not only that, 
But the strange thing is that not only did Esav not deserve the Bechera for three reasons, but Yitzhak could have known about this from three different sources. Either Rivka could have told him the original prophecy or that Esav was a Russia. Yaakov certainly could have told him that, that Esav sold his Bechera to him. And even if these two people had reasons why they didn't tell him, and they clearly did not tell Yitzchak, they kept him in the dark, the Rabbani Shlilim could have told him, because who was the Shekhinah was always with Yitzchak. Therefore, why didn't God or the Rabbani Shlilim tell him about one of these three matters, which clearly disqualifies Esau? Therefore, in terms of any of these sources, Yitzchak could have known and maybe the biggest kasha is that even if Yitzchak, uh, even if uh, Yaakov and, and, and Rivka did, want, did not want to tell Yitzchak about Esau, clearly the Shekhinah should have been Megala, that which was so obvious to others. Clearly the Shekhinah should have been Megala this to Yitzchak so as not to leave Yitzchak in the dark and to have such a terrible, painful experience of being fooled, which he was. Now, we find, in addition... Remember, but I, you know, just to emphasize this, that <clears throat> here Yaakov was going to fool his father, who is an aged man, number one. Number two, he's a novi, and he's an awe. And what kind of son is it that can go and fool his father, given any justification? And not only that, it says, And Chazal say that Yitzchak shook when Esav came in and said, I'm the Yobachor. And Yitzchak realized what he had done. It says he shook a trembling Admi Oid, which Chazal say that Yitzchak in his entire life was never shaken as badly as then, even when he was about to be killed by the Akedah. This year or this trembling exceeded all other years of Yitzchak. And you can imagine how great this Chalorad Gedolah Admi Oid was. So, of course, the question is, why did Yaakov do it? Now, what makes it even more difficult to understand is you find that the Rabbani Shlom wanted this to happen. Yeah. Oh, so the question is, where? It says, that it says, and Yitzchak grew old, and his Yitzchak became old, and his eyesight became dimmed from seeing. So Chazal learned, and this is a Medrash Tanchuma, that the reason why Yitzchak's eyesight dimmed is that he should not be able to see Yaakov. In other words, that the Rabbani Shalom enabled it to happen that Yaakov should get the brachas and Yitzchak should not be able to see it. Because obviously if Yitzchak had good eyesight, this could never have happened. He could only do it because Yitzchak was basically blind. So it's, it, we see clearly that the Rabbani Shalom was a party to the crime if we may call it, if you want to call it that way, in the sense that the Rebbe enabled Yaakov to deceitfully use this ruse to get the brachas. So therefore we see the haskoma, the approval of the Rebbe number one, from that idea. And number two, it says in the Zoya a very strange question and answer. The Zoya asks the question, it says, how did Yitzchak not know of Esav's evil? That's incredible. How could Yitzhak not have known of the incredible riches that Esav was doing? Why? Since the Shekhinah was always by Yitzhak. And we see that the Shekhinah was by Yitzhak because Yitzhak was able to give the blessings with the Shekhinah. 
So therefore, the Shekhinah always was with Yitzchak. It lived with him continuously because that's how great Yitzchak was. So the question was, how could Yitzchak not have known if the Shekhinah was always by him? In other words, the Sh- why didn't the Shekhinah tell Yitzchak who he should bless? And that Esav, of course, was unworthy. So the Zoya answers a very cryptic statement, very mystifying. It says that the Shekhinah did not inform Yitzchok of what happened. Why? Because the Rabbani Shlomo wanted Yitzchok to give the brachos because of God's will, the knowledge of God, not Yitzchok's will or his knowledge. God purposely wanted these brachos to be given to Yaakov without Yitzchok knowing about it. And the Zoya says, And this must be. That's what the Zoya says. Why? The Zoya doesn't go into why. So therefore, we see clearly from the Zoya, from the Vatechena, Ein of Meirois, that the Rebbeinishim wanted this to transpire, that Yitzchak should give the brachos to Yaakov without his knowing it. In other words, that Yaakov should uh, initiate this disguise and through trickery, a trickery, this ruse, take the brachos from Yitzchak. And of course, the question is why, and this is the 51st question which I want to ask. Now, to continue, <clears throat> I, I, there have been many form or many books printed in English and so on, and I saw, interestingly enough, that a, a, a famous, a noted writer and thinker, and I don't want to mention his name, he explains it in a certain way. He has a certain thesis, certain explanation, and he gives the, this shot. And the reason why I mention it is to show you that you have to avoid this shot, because it, it seems good, but the truth is it is the incorrect way of observing what happened between Yaakov and Esau. And he says that the Gemara Dorum says that when uh, the Rabbani Shalom told Avram, because Avram was feeling very bad that he would have to send Yishmuel out. So the Rabbani Shalom tells Avram, Ki bi that in Yitzchak shall you have descendants. In other words, that the, the tradition of Avram will pass through Yitzchak and not through Yishmuel. So don't worry. So the Gemara in the Durham says that it says, it could have said, Ki Yitzchak that Yitzchak shall be called to you, your child, your offspring. Why does it say, Ki Bi Yitzchak, for in Yitzchak? So it answers that the Rabbani Shalom told them also that not only is Yishmuel rejected, but also only part of the descendants of Yitzchak will carry on the tradition. Therefore only Yaakov, not Esau. So you see that in, in, in that Chazal, on that Pesach, it excludes not only Yishmuel, because it says Yitzchak openly, but when it says Yitzchak, in Yitzchak, means Yitzchak, in Isaac, but not all of Isaac, means part of Isaac's descendants will not have the blessings of Avram, will not have the tradition of Avram. Therefore, <laughs> the question is, or rather we see, that not only Yishmuel will be excluded, but also Esav. So therefore, this individual, as a result, uh, wants to make the statement, therefore that the tradition of Avram could only pass to only one, either Yaakov or Esav. He will admit that Esav had a chance, but it was either Yaakov or Esav. They were vying with each other. Who would get it? And of course, what did it depend on? Who was more righteous? So therefore, interestingly enough, he says that if Esav had observed the Torah mitzvahs, and had withstood the temptations and become and, and really been a tzaddik, then 
even if Yaakov had been so great morally, still Esav would have gotten it because he was greater. Of course, now that Esav, of course, did not do it, so therefore Yaakov certainly got it. But he wants to posit the idea that there was really a choice, that it could be either Yitzchak, or rather, uh, excuse me, either Yaakov or Esav. And it was really a contest between the two. And he brings down a Rambam also that says in Malachim, in Perak Yud, that says, the Rambam talks to you about the mitzvah of Milo. Who is commanded to do the mitzvah of Milo? So the Rambam says that only Avram and Zaroi and his children, his offspring, were commanded in the mitzvah of Milo. How do we know this? <laughs> because it says, Ato achrecho. You and your children, your offspring, your descendants after you, which excludes clearly all other nations. That's how we know Avram as opposed to all other nations. What about Yishmael? How do we know Yishmael? Because he is a descendant or an offspring of Avram. So the Ramam says that Yishmael is excluded because it says clearly, that Yitzchak shall be your descendant. He shall carry on the tradition and not Yishmael. So therefore Yishmael is also excluded. Therefore he is excluded, of course, from the bris Milad. Now, how do we know also Esav? So the Ramam says that the reason why we know that Esav is also excluded because he's also in the descendants of Avram because Yitzchak clearly tells Yaakov when he sends him away to Lovan to get a wife and may God give you the blessings of Avram which means Mechlal which obviously indicates that he, he alone is the offspring or descendants of Avram and not Esau. Now, the Ramam has an interesting lotion when he describes this. And he says that that Esau alone is the offspring of Avram. Who holds on, who adheres strongly to the religion of Avram and to the righteous path of Avram. Therefore, they, the Jewish nation, who are descendants of Yaakov, they are Chayav Milo, the mitzvah of Milo, and of course, no guy, Yishmuel, or Esav, are Mechuyiv in Milo. Now, <clears throat> he wants to show, therefore, that why does the Ramam say this last statement, that Hamachzik, uh, who adheres strongly to the religion and the righteous path of Avram, because that indicates that Esav also could have had it. But since Yaakov held on to the righteousness of Avram, his religion and the righteous path of Avram, therefore that's why he got it. But had Esav also held on, or rather had he held on, greater than Yaakov, then he would have gotten it. This is what he wants to say concerning Yaakov and Esav, <coughs> which is certainly an interesting approach. However, what this approach indicates is that there was basically a contest, a rivalry, that there was a rivalry between both Yaakov and Esav, who would have the bris of Avram, who would have the covenant of Avram. In other words, it comes out <clears throat> that both <clears throat> of these individuals are really contestants in a contest, that the Rabban Islam would only give it to one, and each of them would have to fight it out who, who would be able to be the greatest tzaddik. Basically, the idea is really incorrect. 
for many reasons. Besides the fact that it rubs one wrong, that people have to fight out who is going to be in the covenant of Avram. But in any case, there are basically several reasons why this approach is not correct. The first reason <coughs> why <coughs> this is basically an incorrect approach is that, wait a minute, I can understand why all the Goyim are excluded from the Bris Mila, which is the covenant itself, simply because they didn't observe the Torah, only Avram. I can understand why Yishmuel, because not only did Yishmuel not observe the Torah, right, but he was born from Hagar, not from Sarah, and the Zerah Avram obviously is only through Sarah, not through Hagar. But when you come to Esav, Esav was a Jew. He was an Ivri. His parents were Yitzchok and Rivka, who were the same parents as Yaakov. It is difficult for me to believe <coughs> that Esav, initially speaking, that the, the, uh, the covenant of Avram would only go to one of them and not the other. Because both of them were Ivrim, Jews. So therefore, why is it true that it would go to only one? Therefore, it is not logical to assume, since they were both from Rivka and Yitzchak, that it, the Birchus Avram, or rather the covenant of Avram, would only go to one. It's not logical to assume that, because they had the exact same Yichus, the exact same genealogy. That is the first reason why I would reject that Sephora. The second reason is that it says in Malachi, one of the form of Tanakh, Haloi och Esav liyakov, behold, that Esav was a brother to Yaakov, which, which clearly indicates that they were true equals, not that they were equals in a contest in terms of being contestants who would win the covenant of Avram, but they were equal initially speaking. They were both able to be in the covenant of Avram. That's the second reason why I would reject this particular thesis. Now, in addition, <clears throat> you never find that the Rabbani Shlom makes people contend amongst themselves, makes people rival among themselves for his, his, uh, his uh, um, presence or Oilam Habbo. You don't find this kind of idea, this kind of a musag, that there are contestants among nations. A man wars or rivals against himself, not against others. A person has his own purpose to fulfill. That is what the difficulty is. He has to rival himself between his Yetzirah and Yetzirah. If he wins, then he gets the Rabbani Shlom, Ulam Habbo. And if he loses, of course, he doesn't. That's his only other contestant. Yetzirah and Yetzirah. A man does not have another contestant who is going to get the, the, uh, the covenant of Avram if he winds up being a tzaddik. It's completely illogical. Mitzad, that idea. And not only that, but you find that the Bnei Noyach, before God made a covenant with Avram, then all mankind could enter into an agreement with the Rabbi Shalom. Did you find that if one became, the others would not? If all of them were righteous, that God would say, he'd pick and say, well, you won the contest, you were the most righteous. That's absurd. All Bnei Noyach could enter into an agreement with the Rabbi Nishlam. Because man does not vie with others in order to be in God's presence. He vies with himself. And it was only after Avram 
that you find that they were excluded. And interestingly enough, you find that when the Rabbanishim gave the Goyim, the nations of the world, another chance to enter the covenant of Avram, by Matan Torah, the Medrash says that he went around to each nation and offered them the Torah. And had they accepted, they would have been Jews just like the Jewish nation. Had they accepted, but each one rejected it. So again you find that he went around to each nation, that this was their last chance of accepting the Torah. And had they accepted, then God would have made a covenant with them also. And they could also be a Ben Elim Haba, one who would enter an agreement to do the will of God and therefore get Elim Haba, just like the Jewish nation was. That was the last chance he gave the Goyim, the nations of the world, the Umus Ha'ilam. And of course they refused, the Jews were the only ones. And then God forever sealed the, the ability of Goyim also to get Elim Haba as a nation. But he left it open as a gear, that individually they can enter into the covenant, but not as a nation. Okay, So again you find the idea that there's no such thing as a man rivaling with his brother, his own brother, to be in the presence of the Rabbani Shlom. You rival against yourself, not against others. So therefore, I would reject this entire approach as offered by a particular individual in one of the uh, in, in one of the Sfarim and Chumash. And besides that, one clearly sees in the Kabbalah, which is the Pneumus of Torah, the opposite of this entire statement, which was offered that. The truth is that both could have had a chance, not one, and there was a contest. Therefore, I mention this, of course, just to show you, you know, that people have all different kinds of ideas that uh, this is an incorrect approach and that uh, one must seek another direction in order to try to understand what was going on. And interestingly enough, we have to deal with the two statements that he brought, that it says, Ki the Torah clearly says <laughs> that, because the Gemara says that, that only in Yitzchak, only some of the offspring of Yitzchak will be in the covenant of Avram, namely uh, Yaakov. So they see the Torah excludes Esav. The answer to that is that the Torah excludes no one. God was merely telling uh, Yitz, uh, Avram, Benavur, what would be, according to God's knowledge of what would be. He was telling him that eventually what will happen is there will be three exclusions. The first exclusion is of mankind, the Umus Ha'ulam. The second exclusion is of Yishmael. And the third exclusion would be, because this is the way Esav would be Boche, okay, that eventually only Yaakov would be in the Zerah Avram or the covenant of Avram. It's a Nevuah, it's a prophecy, which means that it is stated in terms of God's knowledge, not in terms of what could have been. That's number one. And the second idea of what he brings at the Rambam, that the Rambam says, because uh, Yaakov is the one who adhered very strongly to the religion of, of, of Avram and in his righteous path. You'll notice it doesn't say that Yaakov adhered strongly to his righteous path and uh, to his religion more than Esav. It doesn't say Yisah more. It says he adhered to his religion and righteous path. That's why he got the Brismila, which is the covenant of Avram. However, uh, Esav did not adhere at all to this. So therefore he didn't get it. Not because he was secondary or in that contest 
he did worse than Yaakov. Because had he adhered, he also would have gotten, he also would have gotten, of course, the bris of Avram. So therefore, the Ramam doesn't say, that Yaakov more adhered strongly to the religion and the righteous path of Avram. doesn't say that. Because the truth is, had what the individual previously had, what he said been true, then he could have said that to Rambam. Why? Because Esav also observed mitzvahs. Esav observed mitzvahs of Mila, clearly, and also Kibra of Aim. And he also tithed salt or whatever, because that's what he told Yitzchak. Esav also observed mitzvahs, but it was nothing compared to Yaakov, of course. And Esav was basically a Russia. So the Rambam could have said that Yaakov observed in a far greater way than Esav. Therefore, he gets the bris the covenant and not Esav. But he didn't say that. He merely says that Yaakov observed it. That's why he got it. And Esav did not observe. That's why he didn't get it. Because again, there is no such thing as a man rivaling with somebody else. He rivals against himself. Between his Sahara and his Yitzhah He doesn't rival with somebody else. Now, therefore, uh, I, I mentioned these ideas again to say that this is not the correct approach. If that is the case, we have many questions to deal with. So then the question itself is that, what is this internal design? What is this inner theme or plot, the inner thread, that can actually unify the story? What, what ideas of a plot can we give that will actually answer all the questions in a certain harmony, in sort of like a harmonious gesture, in one sweep. That's the question that we're here to answer. And the answer to that lies really into what, what has been said the entire time. In other words, the same idea that determines all history, the same concept that determines all human events, is the exact same theme that was happening by Yaakov and Esau. Now, what have we been learning until now? If you recall, there's no difference. That story of Yaakov and Esau has to fit into the theme, not only of Yaakov and Esau, it has to fit into the theme of all history, that internal theme. Then we will have achieved a true teferis, a true harmony, because besides revealing or understanding the internal theme or plot or thread of Yaakov and Esav, thereby answering all these questions, we must also unite this with all history, and that is its true harmony. And the question, of course, is what have I said previously, which is that theme which unifies all history, that determines all human events that progresses, and the answer is the concept of the two Meshichan, the Meshich ben David and the Meshich ben Yosef, if you recall, that these two ideas is what unites all history. It's the underlying determinant or rationale. The idea of the Mashiach, the Mashiach ben Yosef, and the Mashiach ben David. And not only obviously is this, does this unite all history, but it's going to be the internal thread of what is going on between Yaakov and Esau. If you recall, from all the previous shum that were given, in terms of the Mashiach ben Yosef and the Mashiach ben David, let me try to refresh your memory. 
because I had left it for a while for many shurim because I had dwelt instead on the ideas of the Midis of the Rabbi Shalom, Chesed, Vura, and Tiferes, and uh, in terms of understanding what the Ovis had to emulate. So therefore I left the previous history. So it's very possible that people by now have forgotten that is the internal theme. So therefore I will very briefly review some of the important ideas that I had mentioned previously. Okay, now, if you recall that the Rabbanishim created the universe in a certain state called Chassan, what was the deficiency of this Chassan? The deficiency was that there was a tremendous Hesti Yehudoi. There was a matzav, a situation of the concealment of a fundamental idea of reality, and that is that the oneness of God is the ultimate reality. This was the situation in the Bria, the matzav in the Bria. And the task of Adam Rishon was to correct that, right? In other words, that Adam Rishon was supposed to masik the Yichud Mitzi He was supposed to comprehend the idea that all reality is based on the oneness of God. And that would have meant that he would have realized that the tree, the Eitz Hadas Tevara, is nothing more than an illusion that God has created, even though it's physically real, but that there is no alternative direction to God's will. Only God, only His will determines reality. Why? Because of Yichud Mitzi that since God is the only true thing that is, exists, therefore, and nothing exists independent of God, therefore, Adam Rishon should have realized that the Eitz Hadas Tevara is not an alternative direction or a different direction than the Rabbani Shalom's will. There is no alternative direction. And he should have realized, because God is ultimate reality, oneness of reality, as a result of that, as a result of his hasoga, his comprehension of that idea, he would have revealed or testified to the unity of God, and that would have been Gili Yehudai, the revelation of the oneness of God, as proclaimed by Adam Rishon, and he would have gotten Eilam this was the task of Adam Rishon. Instead, instead of Adam Rishon being massive, Yehudoi of the God, instead of Adam Rishon understanding the oneness of God as the fundamental, the focal principle of all reality, instead, he comprehended Atzmusai, that he is also an independent being besides God, therefore he is entitled to his own will. And if he wants to eat from the tree, in order to give him powers which are equal to God, which I explained a long time ago, the Midrashim, therefore, he also, he therefore came to that hasoga of atzmusay, <clears throat> of his own being. As a result of that, he then gave, as a result, tremendous power to the sitra achra, which is the force of evil, or that being which tries to hide from man the true reality of the Bria, namely the oneness of God, <clears throat> he gave tremendous power to the Sitra Akhra, which means that the Sitra Akhra became internalized in the psyche of man. He was no more external as a snake. He now became internal. He became the Eight Zahara inside man. And also, he gave power to the Sitra Akhra to tremendously influence creation, the Bria. How? By producing a Hesti Yehudoi, a concealment of the oneness of God. In other words, by Chishach, by promoting darkness, the Sitra Acha can do it, which I'll explain. This is called Kilkul. In other words, the increased amount of concealment of God 
that is now in the universe was a result of Odom Rishon's Chet, and this is called Kilko. So, before the Chet of Odom Rishon, the universe was in a situation of Chisan, merely a deficiency of the knowledge or comprehension of the oneness of God as the focal point of all reality. However, Adam, Odom, with his sin, increased that concealment as a direct response to his action. He increased that concealment. So now he, what he did was he damaged the Bria. He was Mekalkel the Bria. He was Poigim. He blemished it. He increased the amount of concealment. Now, I will have to continue this year next week.